it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Shannon Bream. The first Republican debate is now officially teed up for Milwaukee in August. Three notable candidates are now in the race. Who else is about to take the leap? I'm thrilled to be back in this beautiful state. Thank you very much. It's a great day in South Carolina. Hello, Iowa. Senator Tim Scott tests the waters after chatter he may be the next Republican to jump in and challenge Donald Trump for the White House. The South Carolina Republican joins us to discuss his political aspirations and his Faith in America tour. Senator Tim Scott only on Fox News Sunday. And concerns mount as China appears to grow closer to Russia. Clearly, that, that would have a very, very uh, bad ramifications. Now China is calling for an end to the conflict in Ukraine. Amid reports, Beijing is aiding Putin's war effort. We'll sit down with Senator Ben Cardin, a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, on heightened tensions and Putin's vow to suspend participation in a key nuclear arms agreement. Then the forewoman of the special grand jury investigating Trump's actions in Georgia after 2020 goes on a media blitz hinting about indictments. There are certainly names that you would recognize. We'll ask our Sunday panel whether her actions could undermine the credibility of the prosecution's case. Plus, a look inside the sketchbook of the courtroom artist who takes you inside the nation's biggest cases. All right now on Fox News Sunday. Hello from Fox News in Washington. We are still about a year out from seeing voters head to the polls in 2024 primaries. But the Republican field is taking shape with several candidates already declared. And there is a lengthy roster of potential candidates promising decisions in the coming months. Many of those high profile names are making high profile trips to those early primary and caucus states. In a moment, we will speak live with Republican Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, who is the subject of some recent speculation fresh out of Iowa. But first, a look at his recent travels to that all-important state. As I hear more from the constituents here in Iowa and around the country, it will give me more information on what to do next. Tim Scott's travels in Iowa have the feel of a campaign, minus the official announcement. For America to be at our best, we have to work together. His Faith in America tour is the latest moment in a fast rise from a single parent home to congressman to senator. I would like to introduce to you our Senate elect, Tim Scott. Thank you. As the Senate's only black Republican, Scott has worked for bipartisan consensus on tough issues. I take the issue of policing in America seriously. I want our body to see it not as an issue of Republicans versus Democrats, but as good people standing in the gap, elected to do a job that we all ran to do. Today, Scott is sharing his story of growing up poor, inspired by his mother. My mom said we could be victims or victors. She chose victorious. He's focused on the positive, but he's taking shots at President Biden. 
I understand that President Biden lives in the past because he's been in Washington for 50 years. He's drawn serious 2024 speculation, but is now on the spot to make the case for himself. What are the differences in terms of policy positions that, for example, you may have with President Trump? Probably not very many at all. So joining us now to discuss his potential White House run, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. Senator, welcome back to Fox News Sunday. Good morning, Shannon. I hope you're doing well. I am. Hope you are as well. I'm sure you uh, are a little bit jet lagged, maybe because you've spent a lot of time in Iowa and that's gotten a a lot of notice. You've been testing a message there. Do you now see a lane for you in the 2024 GOP primary? You know, Shannon, more important than a lane for me is do we have a lane for young kids growing up in single parent households like I did? Looking at moms, single mothers who are working 16 hours a day like my mom did, can we make sure that the lane to the American dream is wide open for them? I spent the day with Governor Reynolds, who just passed monumental school choice reform, a powerful tool to make sure that parents have a choice and kids have a chance. So my focus is still on the mission of making sure that every single American believes that the American dream is achievable for them. So you talk with an optimistic message. Um, we talked about how you are highlighting faith, not only in the religious sense, but that you want Americans to have faith in each other. I want to put up a recent Fox News yes. poll about how Americans feel uh, about things today. They say we are dysfunctional f- uh, family, 81 percent of them. Is it realistic to believe that you or any other politician can get us out of our corners and get people back to a place where there isn't so much division? There's no doubt, Shannon, that when you look at that poll, that's one of the reasons why I think it's really important for us to come forward and have an authentic, sincere conversation about the goodness of America. In today's society, the progressive left is trying to make America into a grievance culture when, in fact, we've always stood on the foundation of greatness. Our original sin should never define us because the story of redemption is what we've been living for more than 50 plus years. The greatest story of progress in the world is American progress in the last 50 years. I wish we'd spend more time talking about the goodness of this nation and stop the cancel culture. Okay, let's talk about this positive message and and talking about things like cancel culture. Will it work? The New York Times says this uh, about your assets of being optimistic and possibly history making as the nominee. Both those assets could prove to be a liability in today's Republican primary environment where voters rail against what they see as unfair favoritism toward people of color and where activists may be more interested in anger than optimism. Everybody says they hate negative ads. They don't like the political sniping, but the numbers show us they actually work. So will this optimistic message work? Well, certainly, I think it's always worked. I mean, America is, is a country founded on the concept of hope. Think about it this way. A world without America is a very dark place. America without faith is a, is a nation without hope. So we definitely have to continue to work on the foundation that we have stood upon for the last 250 plus years. But in addition to that, we have to be able to contrast between why we are a great country and why the left wants us to talk about grievance. The fact is that the left is trying to sell a drug of victimhood and the narcotic of despair. The truth is that we have so much to celebrate, and yet today, in many parts of the country, you feel like you're in quicksand. We should not allow the zip code of a child to determine the quality of their life because Education is the most powerful tool to equalize opportunity in this nation, but there are poor zip codes where that's not possible. 
We have to do something about that as one American family. And frankly, governors like Kim Reynolds and others are starting to take that responsibility and prove that we as the GOP, the Great Opportunity Party, we love America. We love our kids. And frankly, we are the best hope for a united future. Okay, I want to talk about school choice in a minute, but a couple of other things about your yes, um, trip through Iowa. So not everybody thought your message was uplifting, including this one reporter from the New York Magazine's Intelligence. Or he says this, it's hard to recall a more stridently asserted expression of belief that the route to national peace and unity requires the subjugation of one party by the other. The Scott speech was a relentlessly partisan screed accusing Joe Biden and the left of pursuing a blueprint for ruining America. So how does that square with the message of us having faith in, in each other as Americans? Well, Shannon, that's, that's a great question. Once again, it goes back to the contrast that is necessary. I'm a hopeful guy, not because I did, haven't overcome problems. I had a miserable beginning. Growing up in a single-parent household, mired in poverty, the challenges that I faced from self-esteem to low grades were monumental. I overcame those challenges with grit, hard work, and inspiration. And so the truth is the left today, they have, seems to be working on a blueprint on how to ruin America. If you wanted to ruin America, you would print and spend trillions of dollars leading to the highest inflation we've seen in 40 years. Why is that negative to point out the fact that under Joe Biden's leadership, we've had the highest inflation in 40 years? Why is it negative to point out that we've had four and a half million people cross our southern border illegally? Why is it negative to point out the fact that we've had 100,000 deaths to overdoses linked to fentanyl, thousands upon thousands of those deaths. If we don't understand the state of America and the weakness in the, of the progressive movement, then it's impossible for us to offer positive, optimistic solutions to the challenges that we face because of the progressive wing of the Democrat Party. You touch there, and you do often, about your personal story. It's very inspiring and compelling to people, whether they support you or not. Um, but even your supporters say there has to be more. Uh, an opinion piece very favorable to you says this. You're a talented candidate finding your theme, but you have to be careful not to substitute first-person narrative for an argument about why he is the right person to lead the country. So if you get in, what is the argument for you, policy-wise, versus President Trump or anybody else who gets into this field? How are you different or better than the other options? Well, Shannon, one of the things that I love to take time to talk about, I hope we have about 30 minutes left to have this conversation, <laughs> is, is the policy. <laughs> okay, sounds good. The policy positions that I've taken. One of the most important parts of being in the majority was the opportunity we have with the Tax and Cut and Jobs Act. I had the good fortune to be the lead sponsor of the TCJA on the personal side of the tax code. So I had the opportunity to help write that specific legislation, and we lowered the taxes for a single mom by 70%. We promised to put more than $4,000 back in the average family's pocket. We ended up around $4,400. We were able to lower unemployment for African Americans, Hispanics, and Asians to the lowest level in the history of the country and the lowest level since World War II for women. We actually saw more money come to the Treasury with lower taxes than anyone imagined. And at the exact same time, wages grew at the bottom faster than at the top. I created Opportunity Zones, my signature legislation, that has seen more than $50 billion attack poverty in the hardest hit areas of the country. 
At the same time, I focused on education. I started the School Choice Caucus. We led to the highest level of funding for HBCUs in the history of the country, and then we made it permanent. I led on the vast majority of those pieces of legislation. I've worked on police reform where we want to make sure that the best were the badge, that the officers have the best resources, the best training, and we never question their qualified immunity. We have to stand in the gap when it matters the most. That means leading from the front okay. and not from the back. I want to make sure quickly, if we can, because I want to get a couple of, to a couple of those yes, issues. School choice. Um, Lisa Leitner, a special education advocate, said what you do is end up hurting public schools when you let parents take the money elsewhere. She says the vision is that the same amount of money spread out over more schools, only the best would survive. If a public school has to compete with a charter or private school, it will find a way to become better. But she asks, how can they improve if you take even more money from them? It's just not possible. Your response. Certainly. Let's look at Success Academy in New York City, where you see their population is about 87 percent minority, and yet their schools are, t are at the top in the state of New York. What we've seen very s consistently, charter schools get about half the money as public schools, yet they are public charter schools. That provides choice for the parents and better quality education. Out of the top 25 percent of high schools in the nation, more than about 12 or half of, the, half of those are charter schools. So what we're seeing around the country is the success of some form of school choice. And by the way, I don't care whether it's a public school, a private school, a charter school, a STEM school, a home school, a virtual school. I want every child in every zip code to have quality education. That should improve all aspects of education, not reduce funding. Okay, I asked Ambassador Haley about this last week, um, that this article that says the GOP, essentially that you and Ambassador Haley give the GOP cover on issues of race. It says Scott's message is that racism is not an institutional or systemic problem, but an individual failing. That's precisely what conservatives want to hear so they can say, well, I'm not a racist, which means we don't have to do much of anything about racism. The only word I can think of is hogwash. The fact of the matter is I was in Austin on Friday having a conversation with uh, several hundred GOPers, and we talked specifically about how the Jim Crow South impacted my family specifically. My grandfather made the choice to be stubborn in his faith, his faith in the future, faith in himself, and faith in this nation. But we had to overcome those challenges. What I don't like is when we hear... President Biden talked about Jim Crow 2.0 when my family lived through Jim Crow. And that's when you had to figure out the number of jelly beans in a jar in order to cast a ballot to suggest that the current Georgia election laws are consistent with Jim Crow. It's just a lie. And so what we have to do is make sure that we arm our people today with the challenges of today and not pretend like we're living in 1923 as opposed to 2023. All right, we have to go, Senator, but do you have a timeline for making an announcement or decision? Well, I'm going, I made the decision to go to church at 1130 today. <laughs> I will be following you there after the show as well. When you decide about your political future, Amen. please let us know. Yes, ma'am. Have a great day. Senator, thank you. Up next, the war in Ukraine passes the one-year mark amid growing concerns about shortages of military equipment in the U.S. and beyond. Democrat Senator Ben Cardin joins us next, live. Okay, everyone, our mission. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, 
What exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. China wants the world to view it as a peacemaker, now calling for a ceasefire between Russia and Ukraine. But the move is prompting skepticism in the West amid reports that Beijing is considering providing Russia with military assistance. Joining me now, Maryland Democrat Senator Ben Cardin, a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Senator, welcome back to Fox News Sunday. Good to be with you. Thank you, Shen. And you're fresh back from Europe, where you sat down with leaders from all over the world to have these conversations about where you go next. Absolutely. We were in Vienna. There was meetings of the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe's Parliamentary Assembly. We met with many delegations, including the Ukrainians were there in the city, not in the venue hall because of the Russian presence. But we had an opportunity to show unity and support of Ukraine and make it clear that Russia, this is Russia's war of aggression. So let's talk about this, um, the role of China here, because both Ukrainian president um, and the Russian president have said they plan to or they're going to meet with President Xi. So China is right in the middle of this whole thing at this point. We've got a brand new Fox News poll out this morning that shows 68 percent of Americans think China is a major threat to the U.S. Add in another 26 percent who say there's some threats. That's 94 percent of Americans who really don't trust China. What do you make of their growing role in the middle of this Russian-Ukrainian conflict? I'm with the 68 percent. I do think China is a major threat against the United States. Look, they're encouraging this war by working with Russia now, perhaps providing additional weapons for Russia to be able to pursue this war of aggression. Uh, This is an attack on the sovereignty of a democratic state. There is no question that Ukraine is the front line. But Russia would not stop there. And China is assisting that. So China is a major threat against the United States. So to that point about potentially sending over lethal aid, the Washington Post reports on that. It says if China does move forward, it'd be the first time that Beijing's done that in this conflict, despite repeated warnings by the United States not to provide such support. It doesn't sound like they're very afraid of our warnings. Well, China needs to know there will be consequences. Uh, We've isolated Russia economically. We can do the same thing in regards to sanctions against China. China needs to understand that they need to be on the right side of history here. And an attack on the sovereignty of an independent state, what Russia has done is a war of aggression, and China should be with us uh, and the, the overwhelming majority of the world speak out. The vote in the United Nations Security Council, uh, the General Assembly indicated the wide understanding of who's responsible for this war. China sat on the sidelines on that vote. That was wrong. 
Uh, but clearly, uh, they should be on the right side of history. So China was among the 32 who abstained. They didn't want to vote on this measure that said that Russia's invasion was wrong and that it has to stop. Um, Secretary Blinken will also visit three countries this week who did the same thing. They abstained from voting. So what should his message, message be to them? You can't sit on the sidelines. You've you, you got to pick a side here. And one side is right, one side is wrong. Russia is wrong. So if you're assisting Russia, you're assi assisting an aggressor who is trying to, to invade the sovereignty of, a, of an independent state, and your country could be next. So join us in standing up against this attack on sovereignty. I want to put up some uh, brand new polling that we've got this morning. Um, there's a measurement of President Biden's job performance on a number of things. Um, the top four all relate to foreign policy, Russia, Ukraine, the Chinese spy balloon, national security, foreign policy. He's upside down on all of that in the disapproval outweighing the approval. So Americans think that the president is, fa is failing on these foreign policy fronts. And a majority of Democrats who are primary voters, when asked about whether they want him to run again, 53 percent say they want to see someone else. Where do you stand on that? Should he run again? I think President Biden has shown not only global leadership for the United States. Uh, I saw that at this meeting where the U.S. and President Biden was so respected, his visit to Kiev, his address in Warsaw. It really united the free world. And domestically, I think the ability to pass a, a major agenda during the first two years shows that he knows how to handle our domestic agenda, rebuild our infrastructure, uh, deal with the chips and science bill to take on China's international competitor, uh, to deal with uh, climate change. I think his leadership has been very valuable for our country. And I think he will be shown historically to have been a, a very effective president. Why do you think the polls don't reflect that because the numbers get worse when you get into things like immigration, inflation, the economy, people increasingly thinking this president is not getting the job done. I, I think the challenge is a typical American family is, it has high, there's high prices. You have to deal with that, the reality that it's difficult to make ends meet. I think President Biden understands that. He's, he's clearly addressed inflation. We've reduced inflation in this country. But I, I think it's, it's difficult today for a family, and that's reflective in some of the popular polls. It is. Um, it, OK, so let's go. I want to get to more of the foreign policy stuff because we're a year into this now and we're now hearing increasing concerns about inventory, what we can provide and others around the world can provide in Ukraine. The Army secretary said this week it could be 2024 or 2025 by the time the tanks that we've um, pledged can actually get there. The Center for Strategic and Inter International Studies says six critical U.S. systems. These are missiles, ammunition, those kinds of things, artillery are getting depleted. They say most inventories will take many years to replace and inventory replenishment will become an increasingly pressing problem. And then the Secretary General of NATO said this on Thursday. The challenge now is that uh, the, the consumption of artillery shells, it's higher than our production. Uh, so far we have uh, depleted our stocks, but this is not sustainable. So how do we deal with the reality that the U.S. and other, you know, Western, um, you know, nations who are trying to help Ukraine here are running short on military supplies? We don't have a good plan for replenishing them. And how vulnerable that may leave us if we end up in another conflict somewhere else, God forbid, China and Taiwan. Let me tell you, Russia is depleting its supplies. It's having a challenge uh, supplying their troops with the necessary equipment to pursue this war of aggression. We clearly have been extremely helpful to Ukraine. They've acknowledged that. It's not just the United States. It's really been our coalition. Uh, yes, we need to replenish the equipment and make more sophisticated equipment available. We need to bring this war to an end with, with Ukraine's victory. And that means supplying them with the equipment they need to successfully defend their sovereignty. 
It's going to be a challenge. Make no mistake about it. But we've had coordination on the supply chains, and we've been very effective in supplying it. There's a limit as to what the Ukrainians can use, uh, but we have to make sure they have everything they need. Well, what about our impact um, uh, being able to replenish that um, inventory that we talked about? This report talks about how many years it would take us to catch up. If this conflict, unfortunately, nobody sees the end in sight or the finish line, where does that leave us vulnerable to other places in the world where we may get drawn into conflicts? We have what we need to defend ourselves. We're continuing to replenish what we need. We're not going to go below a critical level in order to defend our national security. But make no mistake about it, our national security is on the front line in Ukraine today. It's in the United States' interest to make sure that Ukraine wins this war. So our investments here are to help us defend our own country. You know, there are those, um, your colleagues are among them on the Hill who are calling for more of an articulation from the White House about what our national security interests are there, where our commitments begin and end there. Um, Mike Lee, Republican senator, tweeted this out this week. He says, after sending $113 billion to Ukraine in 2022, why should the U.S. even consider sending more money until every NATO member has begun spending at least 2% of its GDP on defense and has spent at least as much of its GDP on Ukraine aid as the U.S. did in 2022. Does he have a point? Well, we do believe that every NATO country should spend at least 2% on defense, and there, we have a game plan to make that a reality, and we've seen tremendous progress on our NATO allies. Uh, what we need to do, of course, we have Sweden and Finland. We need to expand NATO to include those two countries. Uh, we're in the process of doing that. We want our European allies to do their fair share, and they are moving in, a, in the right direction. But make no mistake about it. Ukraine needs our help now. We have to supply the help now because it's a critical moment in the battle. We don't want this to be a, a long campaign. We want to win as quickly as possible. We want to help Ukraine achieve those objectives. Um, Andy McCarthy, um, our colleague here at Fox, wrote a piece this week, and he talked about how far we're willing to go. If you're estimating 100 to $200 billion a year, do we do that for three years, five years, eight years? And, and he says, if we're going to do that, we have to decide what we cut on this end domestically. As you know, we've already hit the, de the debt ceiling. You guys are going to have some tough votes. Or does that mean that this bill just goes to the, our children and grandchildren? I mean, how do we balance those competing fiscal interests? Uh it's a great question. We have to deal with the budget realities and we have to come together, Democrats and Republicans. We have, as you know, the House is controlled by Republicans, mm -hmm. the Senate is <laughs> Democrats. We've got to come together with a budget plan for our country. National security has to be a priority. The amount of resources we're putting into Ukraine will come back to benefit us in, in the long run. So we, we really need to make sure they have everything they need to win this campaign. That's the immediate issue is to make sure Ukraine wins this war. But we also have to make sure that we stay strong our national defense and our domestic priorities are also funded and do it in a responsible way that does not add to the deficit of this country, recognizing it's not fair for our children and grandchildren. Yeah. We wish all of you on Capitol Hill good <laughs> luck with figuring that out. Senator, thanks for coming in. Thank Always you. good to have you. Up next, we will talk 2024, share our brand new Fox News polls just out this hour. We'll bring in our Sunday group next for a look at where Republican voters stand when it comes to the big names in their party. Next. Hi, I'm Jim Caviezel from the PAC. We've got brand new Fox News polls this morning. And one year out from the 2024 primaries, we have a deep dive into which names voters want to see on the ballot. Right now, 
43% of Republican primary voters chose Donald Trump as their preferred nominee. That's followed by Ron DeSantis with 28%, Nikki Haley and Mike Pence each at 7%, Texas Governor Greg Abbott and former Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney each at 2%, all others getting 1% or less. Meanwhile, on the Democratic side, 53% of primary voters would like to see someone other than Joe Biden run. But 37% say they do want to see the president back on the ticket. Let's run the numbers with our Sunday group, District Media Group President Beverly Halberg, Axiom Strategies co-founder and CEO Jeff Rowe, former DNC Communications Director Mo Alithi, and Axios Senior Politics Reporter Josh Kroshauer. Welcome, everybody. Morning. Okay, so we want to put that back up. Uh, the GOP poll, there are a lot of names on there. Um, one of them you heard from a short time ago, um, Tim Scott. Jeff, does it make sense for him to get in? Do you see Lane? Sure, absolutely. He should get in. He's a great voice for the Republican Party. He's been a great senator. But the reality is this is a, this is a two-person race between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. Mm -hmm. Nearly 75% of the voters have chosen between those two. We've not seen that from a governor or even, frankly, a senator mm -hmm. have that kind of strength this early in a, in a presidential primary. So the reality is this will be a very small field. A lot of people are talking about a crazy barroom brawl. Mm -hmm. I don't think so at all. I think it's going to be a small field because the money's not there. The debate stage rules will keep it very limited. Mm -hmm. You have to have a donor threshold. You have to have national polling. And there's simply no room for a, for a third or fourth or even fifth person mm -hmm. in this race. So, Beverly, anybody else getting in at this point, is it a waste of time? Or are they running for VP? What are they doing? Well, I think they're running for just the name identity, whether that is for VP or for other purposes as well. Because I think even when Donald Trump ran initially for president, I don't think he thought he was going to get the nomination, but it does great things for people's businesses, et cetera. But I think what we're going to be looking for is how long people stay in. So mm -hmm. I agree it's going to be the two-person race between DeSantis and Trump more than likely. But if people are, for anybody but Trump, on the Republican side, the more crowded the field is, the harder it's going to be for anybody to mm -hmm. defeat him in the primary. So it depends on whether or not certain Republicans are going to coalesce together to mm -hmm. try to get people to jump out quicker. Yeah, and Josh, we're talking about Ron DeSantis. The governor's not in the race. Yet. He's not in the race. And boy, that number for Donald Trump, 43 percent mm -hmm. of the Republican vote, it is, it is significant. And, and you underestimate, every Republican would underestimate Donald Trump at their own risk. He's had a, quietly had a pretty good political month in terms of doing some of these retail events in South Carolina that he didn't do a whole lot during the 2020 campaign. His trip to East Palestine, Ohio, ahead of Pete Buttigieg going to McDonald's. He's shown sort of a common touch that he had trouble with, frankly, when he was president and running for re-election. So these numbers show that Trump is still formidable within the Republican Party. And I agree with Jeff, Ron, Ron DeSantis, if he does get in, is going to be the, the, the other big elephant in the room. But boy, like Trump, any, you're not hearing a lot of Republicans going after Trump. They're going after DeSantis or trying to figure out where they stand in the party. And I think they do that at their own peril because Trump is still very, very popular within the Republican Party. Yeah, and it's tricky for them because when you press them on where they're different or why they're a better option, they don't want to go directly at President Trump at this point. And the poll probably shows a good reason why. Okay, another poll. Um, we asked people, how much money do you have in your pocket versus last year? Here are the numbers. More 12%, good for those folks. Same 31%, less 57%. And that is, I mean, a huge jump from, if you look back to February 2018, just a, a couple years ago, under the Trump presidency. Um, Mo, that may be part of the reason why folks say they aren't excited for a President Biden repeat. Yeah, look, I think the economy is as good as people think it is, right? And perception. when it comes to politics, perception really matters. The president has a really compelling uh, 
argument to make about how the economy has gotten stronger under him. But people haven't felt it. And there's a simple rule in political communications. You can't go out there and tell people that they're wrong <laughs> about how they feel. So even though he can and he should continue to go out there and make the case about why the economy is stronger and how it's getting better, the next part is the most important part. And this is one too many people oftentimes flub in politics. We're getting better, but not enough people are feeling it. Mm -hmm. And here's what we're going to do next. That has to be what this president talks about every single day for the next two years. And I think he's well positioned to do it. And I think the way this Republican field is shaping up actually gives him even more room to do it. Because if the Republican field is out there talking about how woke the left is, and the president is out there saying, economy's getting stronger, but not enough people are feeling it, and here's how we're going to make sure you do, that's a contrast Democrats would really like to have. Does anybody think President Biden decides not to run? No. We think it's just a matter of time. Yes. Right. Okay, so um, let's put up his approval on any number of issues. This is a crowded picture, but we want to let you see. So we talked about this. I talked about this with Senator Cardin. The top four are all foreign policy. He's upside down on all of those. The numbers only get worse when you get into opioids, gun, immigration, economy, inflation. I mean, inflation, he's down by, I'm not great at math, but 35 points, I think. Um, so, Beverly, what does he do with that? How does he turn around those perceptions, like Mo said, perceptions reality for a lot of folks when they're trying to pay their bills and put food on the table. Well, I think he's had a poor message. He'll talk about how good the economy is, but yet when people go to the grocery store, even if they can afford it, they're looking at what eggs cost. They're looking also at gas costs, and that has gone down a bit. But people are seeing those numbers in real time. And so he can say all he wants that things are great, but if people are seeing something different, it's not going to resonate. I think he would do better if he actually talked about the pain people are feeling, acknowledging that, talking about what he is trying to do to lower that. I think that would be a better message for him. So we have this uh, potential third-party wrench. I don't know, third-party or not, but we're talking about Senator Joe Manchin. He had uh, a radio interview this week. The, the Hill reports on it this way. When pressed further on whether he has definitively ruled out a bid for the presidency, Manchin responded, I don't know. I think right now you don't know who the Democrat nominee or who the Republican nominee is going to be. Manchin responded, that's fair, when radio host Hoppy Kirchival said he thinks the senator is still considering running for the presidency. So, um, Jeff, does he run as a Democrat? Does he run as a third-party spoiler? That sounds like he's not running for reelect, is what that sounds like, because I have a better chance of winning South Carolina than Joe Manchin does against <laughs> Joe Biden. So I think they're in a, in a pickle here with Biden. They can't get rid of him. They can't let him run. And so if it's anyone besides Trump, it's a real problem, because Trump provides the base motivation for Democrats. That's what took us from a historical 125 million vote turnout for a Republican presidential election to 150 last time. And so I think that's their hope, that they get the rematch that they want and the rest of the country really isn't looking for. Well, and Mo, President Trump has not committed to supporting the GOP nominee if it's not him. So there's also this ulcer-making scenario for the GOP that he decides to run as a third-party candidate. Yeah, look, I think there's many Republicans who sweat uh, Donald Trump uh, as there are Democrats who sweat Donald Trump. I think he is... Um, he is a, a walking grenade in any room of politics, right? You never know when he goes off and what it does. But I'll say this. I don't know what happens in 2024 because I think there are a lot of questions out there about what each candidate does. Ron DeSantis looks super strong, but Ron DeSantis has never been tested on a national stage. He could get on a national debate stage, right? Remember, at this point in, in 2016, uh, in 2015, I guess, 
Jeb Bush looked really strong for Republicans. Eight years before that, Rudy Giuliani looked really strong for Republicans before they got tested. DeSantis hasn't been tested. If I'm on the Biden campaign, the guy I'm looking at the most closely is a Tim Scott who has a way to talk about issues different than the rest of them who are all out there trying to be out anti-woke, uh, out to out anti-woke one another. That's not what's going to resonate in a general election. So I, I don't know what happens. I think the president knows what he needs to do. And if he's focused on that, I think he'll get a few assists from the Republican candidates along the way. Okay, quick break here because we have a lot more to discuss. Up next, Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene kicked off a heated debate this week, tweeting about what she called, quote, national divorce. The panel will talk about that and much more as the Congresswoman doubles down. This isn't ending our union. This is shrinking the federal government, which we need to stop our spending. subpoena the former president because I got to swear everybody in. And so I thought it'd be really cool to get 60 seconds with President Trump of me looking at him and being like, do you solemnly swear? And me getting to swear him in, I just, I kind of just thought that would be an awesome moment. That's the forewoman of the special purpose grand jury that investigated then President Trump's actions in Georgia after the 2020 election. She made a lot of headlines this week, raised uh, some eyebrows with her candor. We are back now with the panel. All right. Um, Josh, National Review wrote on this and said, essentially, this may be a lucky break for President Trump. They say, if Emily Kors, who is that four person in Fannie Willis, the DA, helped Trump convince Republican primary voters that the Democrats' quest to indict him here, there and everywhere is a politicized abuse of power, his bid for the GOP nomination could get a big boost. Is this potentially, we're waiting on potential indictments. We have no idea what's going to happen there, but does this, her media tour, actually help the Trump team? Well, first, by the way, that was not a Saturday Night Live sketch, even though she was parodied on, on Saturday Night Live. And look, I think the bigger picture here is that the way Trump is defeated is through the political system, not, not the legal system. And I think Democrats have put all their chips in this basket that some prosecutor whether you know it's here in D.C. or Fannie Willis in Fulton County, is going to have the smoking gun that's going to take Trump out of the, the political race. And that's just not going to happen. And look, even if he is indicted, there's some evidence that, that as, as this, this foreman has said, that that might happen. Uh, there's going to be a lot of questions that the Trump campaign rightfully is going to raise about credibility and impartiality that could taint the case before it begins. So. Well- you know, the, the notion that this is this, this one legal case that's going to change the political di- dynamic has always been, been wrong. And, and I think Democrats have had a hard time learning that lesson. OK, and as you mentioned this week, um, he was out doing some things um, that are playing well with a lot of people. We've got him in Ohio this week going to the scene of the train derailment in East Palestine. While, you know, the Biden administration was taking a lot of heat for not getting there. Um, the president, it seems like he says he doesn't have a plan to go when he was pressed on whether he'd even talk to the local mayor there. Um, he said... I don't think I have, but guess who has? Donald Trump has been there and talked to him. So missed opportunity, Mo, for the administration. Um, I uh, I think a lot of people wish they had been there a little bit sooner, but I don't necessarily think it was a total missed opportunity. I think the ongoing federal response is what's going to matter. The fact that they are holding uh, Norfolk Southern accountable and been very aggressive with that is going to matter. Um, look, people there are unhappy with everybody right now. They're happy with the federal government. They're, ha- they're unhappy with the Republican governor. Um, people want to see more reaction. I don't think Donald Trump going to hand out water and cleaning supplies is really going to turn people one way or another. It actually reminds me very much 
of his response to the hurricane in Puerto Rico when he was president. He went and he tossed out water bottles and paper towels. And you know what? All these years later, Puerto Rico is still dealing with the ramifications of that. So it was a political stunt. But I think the administration knows that it can't allow itself to be seen as absent. And so ramping up that response, showing themselves on the ground more, when Trump shows up making the point that, you know, this happened in part because of the deregulations that he put in place as president, but focusing well, on the cleanup as quickly as possible. Okay, but the, the NTSB seems to suggest that's not the case. With the overheated axle, it wasn't an, an issue of the brakes and, and that kind of regulatory issue. So th- But they that still did continues. roll back regulations at a time when people are feeling like maybe there ought to be more. So there's a political fight to be had. I think the administration is right to focus more on the cleanup and okay. getting people back on track. Secretary Buttigieg got there after President Trump did. Here's what he said. What I tried to do was balance two things. My desire to be involved and engaged and on the ground, which is uh, uh, how I am uh, generally wired to act, and my desire to follow the norm of transportation secretaries, allowing NTSB to really uh, lead the initial stages of the public-facing work. I'll do some thinking about uh, whether I got that balance right. Jeff, uh, a lot of people are questioning whether he got that balance right. It was bad. It was a bad moment for the administration. Uh, Trump was handing out water. He's the first one there. And Buttigieg is handing out apologies. So the entire optics were bad to start with. And then I, I would have thought of all the cabinet secretaries, the one person that wouldn't need fashion advice would be Mayor Pete with his boots and the fancy boots. And that was a whole moment. But the reality is the number one thing you do when there's a, when there's a, a tragedy is be there and be there early. And they didn't do that. Trump beat him to it. They sucked the oxygen out of the Ukraine visit that Joe Biden had. And so it just was a win for the for the Trump campaign and a bad, bad look for the Biden administration. And the White House will say they had federal crews and assets there on the ground the day after the wreck. The big names weren't there. We haven't I don't think the president will go. um, But to have a cabinet secretary, you know, that was later for them. But there have been assets there on the ground, to be fair. okay. so let's talk about um, Congresswoman uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and this national divorce idea. Um, Here's one of her tweets. This is not the original, but she's had many. She said, people saying national divorce is a bad idea because the left will never stop trying to control us is literally making the case for national divorce. We don't want a civil war. We're not surrendering. We're tired of complaining with no change and want to protect our way of life. I mean, Beverly, this gets back to some of the earlier polling I talked about with Senator um, Scott. People feel very divided in this country. Well, I think it's notable that we have a city member of Congress who's advocating for breaking up the United States. So that's one thing. It's an easy thing to tweet. It's a hard thing to do in practice, especially during COVID when you see how many people have left blue areas. How would we actually practically do this when you have blue cities and red states? The focus should be on federalism, and the focus should actually be on a melting pot and being able to disagree with people in an agreeable way. That's what we need to look to, not divide the country. Yeah, over in National Review, um, Professor Wilfred Riley calls it an insanely bad idea. He says when we're fighting a proxy war with Russia and China looms as a long-term rival or enemy, doing so would reduce America's size and power by half. Xi Jinping would cut off his own right arm to see this happen, Josh. Yeah, not only is it unrealistic, but the political divides are within the states, not not state versus state, but like her, her own home state of Georgia, Atlanta is becoming very, very blue. And the rural parts of the state are, are very, very red. So I don't know how you have a, a succession movement within your state. So it, it just not only is unrealistic, but it doesn't understand the reality of politics today. All right. We're going to leave it there, panel. Thank you very much. We'll see you next Sunday. Up next, my conversation with an artist whose work you are likely very familiar with, even if you never realized it. 
how he's taken you inside some of America's biggest, most notable court cases for decades. Life doesn't... As many of you know, I enjoy pulling double duty here at Fox. I also cover the Supreme Court. And as you also know, there are no cameras allowed inside the high court during arguments. So over the years, I've gotten to know one of the artists who's done the most to show you what unfolds there as the justices hear the cases that impact all of us. I spoke with him about his very unique role, capturing what happens behind closed doors at the highest court in the land and high-profile cases all across the country. I want them to feel as though they're there. I'm not trying to shade it in any particular way. That's my responsibility. That's my job. You don't know his face, but you do know his work. In a city where courtroom drama drives news, but cameras are rarely invited in, artist Bill Hennessy is there with his pencils and paper. I try to do more than just statically record what's there, but actually kind of catch the energy and the emotion of what's there. It's a profession he stumbled into as a young art student. Our department got a phone call. Uh, the woman at the door said, hey, there's a TV station on the phone. Would anybody be interested in drawing in a courtroom? And I jumped at it. And much to my surprise, it's been over 40 years. At what point did you transition to this is going to be the work that I do? It was crazy. The whole concept of it was basically, you know, it's like imagine just wherever you are, walking into a room full of, you know, 50 people. And it's like, quick, we need a drawing of this. And it's like, what do I draw here? I really had to think like a journalist. I finally got a grasp on it and said, okay, I can, I can do this. Today, his sketches are a staple of television news, telling the story of the nation's most consequential cases. You've been in celebrity trials, terrorism trials, a lot of big Supreme Court cases. What are some of the, the standouts for you? Oh, my gosh. You know, that's almost impossible. He sketched former Washington, D.C. Mayor Marion Barry, the D.C. sniper case, the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp defamation trial, and a young woman who interned in the Clinton White House. Rumor was... There was no blue dress. There was, she wasn't going to testify. And it was like, we've been waiting for months and nothing's going to come of this. And then was, the word was, oh, yeah, there is a blue dress. They have it. Oh, yeah, actually, Monica's going to testify. He also sketched that intern's former boss. The first impeachment, that really struck me because I had this sort of front row seat uh, in the, the press gallery looking down on all that. I remember being just overwhelmed by that. And I remember this from government class. This never happens. It's so rare. There have been three now. Do you feel pressure when it's somebody that is a recognizable figure? Absolutely. <laughs> that, is, uh, that weighs heavily. When it's someone they know, they're looking to make sure you get it accurately. But at the end of the day, you got to finish. You're done. It airs. And that's the best you could do. And you move on to the next case. His pencils have seen a lot. Are there moments when you're sitting in a trial... And something shocking happens, and you stop where you're at and think, this is going to be a very different sketch. There's a lot of things happen that you don't expect. And that's what you got really got to be ready for, because that can be the story. Sometimes that story is outside the courtroom. I heard a commotion from the floor above, and this shirtless guy comes flying down the escalator. I mean, he's like going eight, ten steps at a time, and he was moving, and he's being pursued by, like, four court marshals. It was crazy. The amazing thing about that is if you look at that sketch, at the bottom there's a woman standing at the bottom of the escalator. She put her foot out and tripped him. 
Inside the courtroom, Hennessy has perfected the speed of his craft. I see you in the courtroom. We're listening to arguments. I'm furiously scribbling my notes. You're there working in real time on these sketches. It is going as the case is going. Right, right. I mean, that's what's kind of cool about it, but also what's kind of crazy about it. We are an institution. You, you walk into these courtrooms and people know Bill Hennessy is here. This is a trial of import, and he's going to make sure that the public gets to see what's happening in oh, here. Oh, I appreciate that. I mean, I've, I do have a lot of friends and got to know a lot of really great people over the years. This is what I was talking about. So I've I, seen I, Hennessy over those years in my time covering the court's most historic cases. And that case at the top there was... A really big moment in history, that's the Dobbs case that ended up overturning Roe v. Wade. That's right. That's right. That was Dobbs. And actually, there's a reporter in there you might recognize. <laughs> I was so excited to find out I made it into a Bill Hennessy sketch. In today's world of instant digital news coverage, sketching might seem old school, but Hennessy says otherwise. It has changed. Now, 24-hour news, they want it. Immediately. It's fast. Almost as soon as the, the gavel strikes, courts adjourned. It's like, how soon can you have that? My method of working lends itself to this because I draw fast and I like that kind of energy. Now it's, it's more demanding than ever. Do you ever think about the legacy and these moments in time that you've captured? No camera could ever be there, but your artwork is going to be what we have. I haven't really dwelled too much on that. Yeah, that is pretty special. And in that regard, I'm going to let my kids figure out what the heck to do with all those, <laughs> all those historical images. And I will see Bill over the high court this week. We'll both be there covering the arguments on student loan forgiveness by the president. Before we go, we want to let you know my colleague Brett Baer sat down with, or he will, with FBI Director Christopher Wray this week. You can catch the exclusive interview Tuesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, during Special Report with Brett Baer on Fox News Channel. And a quick note, my podcast, Live in the Bream, drops this morning, 10 a.m. Eastern. This week, I sit down with Pastor Greg Laurie, whose life is at the center of a new movie hitting theaters this week, Jesus Revolution. It's a story of a massive cultural and religious movement in the 70s that led to that famous Time magazine cover, The Jesus Revolution. You can hear all of the interviews from today's program on the Fox News Sunday podcast. You can download and subscribe by heading to foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your podcast to listen to any of the ones we produce here at Fox. That is it for today. Thank you for joining us. I'm Shannon Bream. Have a great week. We'll see you next Fox News Sunday. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to Fox News Sunday ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.